Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Will a rise in tax dollars save us from the current economic crisis? Can we depend on bonds? And how can we better understand the next stimulus? More than one of our listeners have expressed confusion about the relationship between inflation and the vast amounts of new money created by our central banks, especially the Federal Reserve. Another loyal participant with us asked for more perspective on the historically high stock market, the near zero percent bond yields, and the recent historical highs in the gold market. And finally, we had a listener asking if it's too late for the next stimulus given the time period before, during, and immediately after the upcoming and most contentious election. I'm happy to shed more light on any economic topic, so please keep the questions coming. I'll certainly do my best with the most sincere desire. It will be of help to most all of our listeners. Let's start with the situation analysis, which focuses on the gist of the questions just asked. Both political parties agree on one item. Congress should provide more trillions of dollars in stimulus programs, and either party's programs will result in another multi-trillion dollar national government deficit. Last budget year, we finished a month or so ago, the U.S. government spent over $3 trillion in excess of the monies it took in. And for this year, 2021, another $3 trillion deficit can be expected, with many more $1 trillion-plus deficits to follow year after year after year. The entire amount collected via personal income taxes each year for perspective is, quote, only about $1.5 trillion. And the total amount collected in corporate income taxes is only about $200 billion. So if we increased everybody's taxes 50% to pick a number, and we increased the corporate income tax, oh, let's just go ahead and double it. So we would take in $2.2 trillion in personal income tax and maybe $400 billion in the corporate income tax. We would fall far short of covering our actual annual expenditures, which is a large deficit, and we would have no chance and have no chance of providing money to pay back any debt. So tax increases based on our current spending patterns are basically a drop in the bucket. And it's sort of too bad that both political parties don't tell us that. In addition to the annual budget deficits, our Federal Reserve continues to ramp up its creation of new money as they are now the main buyers of new U.S. debt. And that that includes all the treasury bills that are newly issued, the treasury notes and treasury bonds. And these obligations now total $27 trillion. And they seem to be growing at at least $3 trillion a year, which is our deficit. And it could well be more than that. So a year from now, our government will owe $30 trillion. And a year from that, maybe $33 trillion. What does that mean if we sort of bring it down to the families? That means the debt for every taxpayer in the United States, if each taxpayer were to chip in and pay off the national debt, each taxpayer would pay $217,000 today. And this is going up at uh, more than 10% a year. So 
Next year, the debt per taxpayer may be closer to $240,000. A year later, $260,000, $270,000. So the amounts are pretty staggering. And that really doesn't include all the state and municipal debt, which is a little bit beyond what we're going to get into today. But that's a, a great future topic. So what is all this new debt? And what is all this new money? What do they produce? And why should I even care? Well, first of all, you should care because we're nearing an end game. And the end game will ultimately change your life savings, your bond investments, whether you have them in retirement accounts and bond trusts, wherever they are. If you bought U.S. Treasury bonds individually, it's going to change the values of those bonds. And the sad item in my view, is that over my life anyway, I've been told that bonds are conservative, they're great for retirement, you can count on them, and so forth. And generally, that's been the case in terms of government bonds. But what the government bonds will purchase when they come due, if they are redeemed, and there's a chance that the bonds may not be redeemed, and that's another subject of a future podcast, But if they are redeemed, how much will they buy when they're redeemed? What's the purchasing power versus now? That's changing dramatically, and we're going to get into that. And it's changing in a very negative way. In addition, the end game may well have most positive impacts for your future house price. In the really long run, the positive impacts may be for more in the future stock prices. And ultimately... These changes will impact your industry, your annual income, and as I mentioned, the purchasing power of the money when you get it from the various investments. My strong recommendation is you should consider the recent findings and actions of private research institutions and some of the world's largest investment managers. Unfortunately, government and political related entities particularly those that report data, statistics, and so forth, much less the political parties, which are even more extreme. These groups generally offer only data that supports their own agendas. It may not be your agenda, but it's their agendas. In terms of what I'm doing in the podcast, I I like to comment on the official statistics. And as you may recall, Inflation, based on official statistics, is highly underreported. Inflation is running at a much higher rate than is reported. That serves to keep the Social Security adjustments down and prolong the life of Social Security, but it doesn't provide purchasing power protection. Some of the other biases, as I've also mentioned, are in the unemployment statistics where individuals who are chronically unemployed don't even count. They don't count in the statistics at all. So the employment rate is uh, quite flawed. If you look at the employment rate, I would recommend you look at the U6 series, which includes some of the discouraged workers. Look at the U6, the standard report issued by our government agencies. It's the U3 report, which is highly flawed. I'm quite confident our real unemployment is much closer to 20% than it is 10%. In short, our podcast has limited time. So here's some food for thought. Let's start with data performance from some of the key asset groups. And this is, again, why you should care. The best performing asset class this year, year to date, was bonds. And bonds went up about 6.8% in value this year. After that is stocks. And this is tricky. The Standard & Poor's 500 index increased 5.6% so far this year. However, again, as mentioned in prior podcasts, 
Most stocks did not participate in this rally, and the rally was led by the digital and tech leaders, you know, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, Google, Facebook as examples. And to get one more level into detail, if we look at the S&P mid-cap 400 stocks, as opposed to the S&P 500 index, the S&P mid-cap 400 stocks actually lost 8.6% this year. And the S&P small 600 companies lost 15.3%. Finally, the MSCI International Index lost 7.1%. So the stock market, once again, the gains are being led by a very small number of companies, which are the ones uniquely positioned to benefit from COVID, the COVID economy. Only a handful of our largest companies have benefited so far from all the new debt that has been issued and all the new money that has been created. They have access to the lowest borrowing costs in history, and many large companies, as you've read, have bought back their own stock, and they've even borrowed more money at low interest rates to refinance their past borrowings. So this has been really good for them. On the other end of the spectrum, the COVID economy dealt a death blow to many traditional retailers and perhaps over half of our restaurants. It's expected that over half of the restaurants that closed in March will not reopen. So overall, the gainers in terms of percent gain have outnumbered the losers, but the gainers are a small number and the losers are a very large number with an estimated 15 million plus people still out of work as of October 16th, still out of work. And each week the newly unemployed report comes out Thursday morning and week by week by week for the past uh, number of weeks, the newly unemployed has exceeded 800,000 people per week, which represents to me an economy that is stagnant. We did snap back a bit, quite a bit actually, from the depths of the March-April really high unemployment numbers, but we're not making improvements week to week at present, and that's an issue. So despite all the above, and because of some of it, the economy is in a no-growth mode. It's expected that the gross national product for the full year will be down 4 or 5%, and projections now are changing in a very negative way for next year since the anticipated stimulus has not come. And to answer one question asked earlier, yes, I actually do believe that when a stimulus does come, which will be sometime after the election, whichever party wins, it will be too late for many small companies who are in the bankruptcy pipeline now, and it will be too late for many of the service industries, restaurant industries, retail, traditional retail, and so forth. So a lot of the negativity is pretty much dialed in right now. I'm sure a large stimulus plan will be of some help. I don't say it won't be of any help, but it will not be of sufficient help to stop what looks to be a pretty much dialed in downtrend in companies that would normally be doing significant hiring. One private research company, Peace Catagua Research, that's a mouthful. I've been following their research for a number of years, and they seem to be amazingly on target in the overall economy. They're not a household name. I realize that they are private, and they receive no government money that I'm aware of, so I think I'm getting the best of the research. 
they have concluded that the main beneficiary of the above money policies and the new debt policies uh, has been the business sector, primarily the large business sector. And they did a fairly extensive analysis looking at what the total benefit of the recent policies have been and concluded quantitatively that about 56% of the total benefit Not everything was a benefit, but 56% of the total benefit from the recent programs benefits the large business sector. If you go back to a little bit to the Great Depression, and the Great Depression programs were analyzed, and they actually had funneled about 75% of the total benefit to households. So recently, if you feel that a lot of people are not really getting ahead and employment is not really picking up, at least in recent weeks, and that a lot of people have been outside of uh, receiving a substantial benefit from the various programs, I suspect you're right. The research company further concludes that this year's new debt and money creation is actually now creating inflation. It's creating negative saving, negative growth, but it is increasing profits of our country's largest companies. So assuming a large part of this is true, or even any part of it is true, we have a disconnect between programs intended to help most in the country and who they're actually helping. I'd offer one more final piece of data that I think is worth consideration. I'm kind of returning back to the stock market right now. Those who remember the dot-com bust back in 2000-2001 will recall how stock prices, in hindsight, in other words, from 2004-2005, in hindsight, people generally said, yeah, gee, you know, 2000, 2001, stock prices were very high. It was in fantasy land. People were buying companies based upon clicks for their site. They weren't looking at the income or cash flows. I think some of you can identify with that. Back then, the entire S&P 500 index traded at 2.44 or 2.4 times the total sales of all the companies in the index. And I think that has been a historical high. And from there, going through the 08-09 Great Recession, that same ratio dropped from 2.44 down to 0.8. And that's a pretty substantial drop. That's dropping from the high. It's dropping 70 to 80 percent. However, companies did grow during that period, so sales were higher, but the stock prices after the 08-09 Great Recession had dropped really substantially on that ratio. Well, now we are back to the 2.4 or 2.44 area and the high that was reached before the dot-com bust. That's food for thought. A part of this vast amount of money creation is supporting not only the stock market, but it's also undermining the bond markets. This year, it has been supporting the bond market price increases, but now at pretty close to 0% interest rates, bond prices have hardly anywhere else to go now. Overall, here's the situation. Most traditional buyers of government bonds have left the marketplace. That includes China. It includes many of the private and corporate and the funds who have been long-term buyers of government bonds. This is really a big deal. The Federal Reserve has and is creating so much money, it has become the default buyer and by far the majority buyer of our new government debt. 
Social Security was once a big buyer of government bonds, but now it has to be a seller as Social Security benefit payments exceed contributions. So few high net worth individuals are motivated to buy government bonds when, for example, they're asked to invest money for 10 years and get in return almost no interest income. Actually, they would get 0.7% a year, which is close enough to zero for me. Another part of our today's situation is that uh, European government bonds have now hit a historical high dollar value that actually pay negative interest rates. Who'd buy these? Who would put 10000 or 100000 or a million dollars into a government bond and 10 or 20 years from now receive less than that negative interest? Who would do that? Well, the central banks do that. Federal Reserve does that. Why do they do that? They want to keep interest rates low. What would happen if they didn't do that? These bonds would not have buyers at 0% or negative or even 1%. So interest rates would be forced to go up. As the governments have to sell more bonds, if there really are very few buyers, they're going to have to pay a very high interest rate. Why wouldn't they want to do that? Well, because they owe so much debt and the interest payments are so high, even at 0 or 1 or 2%, that the governments themselves could default because they could not afford to pay the interest on the debt if interest rates were to increase significantly. All in all, the Federal Reserve is stuck. They're trapped, and so is the European Central Bank, and so are the other major central banks. They just cannot allow interest rates to increase, or the increase would cause more bankruptcies and defaults. And right now, this week, this month, a number of emerging countries are facing defaults. And that's with interest rates close to zero. Argentina has been in the news for several months, but there are many more emerging countries, particularly with COVID, with very low international trade, particularly in countries that count on tourism, the Mediterranean countries. And there's no light at the end of the tunnel right now. So the central banks are now the main buyers of past, present, and future debt including the Federal Reserve that has many new facilities even to buy government debt, city debt, state debt. They buy corporate bonds, and there's the prospect, if they're not doing it yet, of buying stock indices. I suspect they're doing it. I can't prove it. And there's no exit plan. There's no way to reverse this without creating a major recession or depression. Neither political party wants to talk about this. If you followed any of the speeches or any of the rallies, if you followed any, any of the spinmeisters who play it reporting the news once in a while, neither political party wants to talk about the debt issue. As they say, crickets out there. And this is one of the biggest issues that needs to be addressed. And right now, there doesn't appear to be an exit plan. So kicking the can down the road, as they say, the Fed pumping more new money into the economy, buying more bonds, the government issuing more debt, it seems to be the way that we're going to go. And no matter which party is elected, we're going to go that way until it can't go that way any longer. And as one famous person once said, when something is not sustainable and can't continue, it won't be sustainable and it won't continue. So we are at the point now, we're very late in the game of kicking this big can down the road. And I know no one can call changes in any economy, day to day or week to week. But the current situation is leading us to more increases in debt, more money creation, and that's going to result in financial market instability and high volatility. 
just a matter of will it be next month, December, January? When will it be? But already the private and corporate and sovereign wealth funds are hardly to be seen in buying the new debt issues. We've already noted that as a major change. Uh, I would suggest that we all sort of think about, not only think about inflation, but think about hyperinflation. Hyperinflation sounds, sounds scary and likely is scary, but hyperinflation is more technically defined. It's really a period which takes away the tools to control interest rates and prices. For decades, the Federal Reserve would control interest rates and prices. It would add money to the system. It would subtract money from the system. It would buy government bonds. It would sell government bonds. It would tweak the interest rates. And during the Volcker period in the early 1980s, it was more than tweaking. They actually drove up mortgage rates above 15% to have an impact on debt accumulation and real estate price increases. And I would say it was pretty successful almost 40 years ago. But for decades, the Federal Reserve has pretty much added money, net added money, to have the reported consumer price index increase at about 2% a year. Although since the 1990s, when changes were made in the consumer price index that I've talked about before, the actual inflation rate, which is not the consumer price index, the actual inflation rate typically would run twice, sometimes three times the consumer price increase. Now it's running much higher than that, but we'll get to it in a minute. Hyperinflation is really the negation of the tools to control debt accumulation and price increases. I would argue that the Fed doesn't have that tool anymore. They're stuck having to feed new money into the system to keep the economies, to keep the noses above water, if I can say it that way. There's no long-term plan that's discussed, as far as I know. I don't see an exit plan. This ultimately will result in high inflation. It ultimately will result in changes in the value of the bonds. As interest rates go up, the bond prices will go down. And if I were really a little bit more free-thinking than I want to be of the record here, I would suggest that one potential action that the central banks and the newer leaders will take, whoever they are, will be to convert the debt repayment on government bonds to a long-term interest payment only. So for those who might own a 30-year bond, expecting that they're going to receive part of that principal back every year, the future may be in a 30-year bond. It may be an open-ended, maybe like a 50-year bond, 100-year bond. The United Kingdom has had bonds that long, and they pay only the interest. They're never redeemed. That might be an outcome that we would see in this country, long run. If that's the case, I would not want to be a bondholder. I don't particularly want to be one today, but that would be the icing on the cake. And I'm thinking about that as a direction that would buy more time. I don't like to think about that, I'll have to say. But as I've argued, and as I believe, the Federal Reserve is totally trapped. By decreasing the money supply or even just not increasing it, they risk an immediate major recession or depression. And at the extreme, they can't decrease interest rates. They're already just about zero. If they don't continue to buy newly issued government bonds, the U.S. government could default, and that would be a first. We don't want to see that because that would crater the dollar 
send interest rates to be dramatic to the stratosphere and would make the purchases of imports really expensive, really expensive. Ultimately, maybe sooner rather than later, we'll recognize inflation rates are far higher than the official reports that understate them even now. And I think I mentioned in a prior podcast, you may want to put this on your list when you have a few extra minutes. Google the Chapwood Index, C-H-A-P-W-O-O-D. If you Google that, you'll come to the site that explains what they've been doing for a lot of years. They actually report the price increases of 500 items on which most Americans spend their after-tax money. There are no gimmicks, no alterations, no seasonable adjustments. They just report the real prices. And that also creates a contrast to the official consumer price index, which, as I've said, is grossly underreports the inflation rate. It's not intended to report inflation, actually. And if you go into the site, the Chapwood Index, they explain how they do it. They explain how they gather their data. And knowing that not every American buys 500 items, you can begin to appreciate I hope the value of tracking actual prices of large numbers of real items. And if you did that, for example, in the Los Angeles market, Chapwood concludes that the inflation rate in Los Angeles of these 500 units, 2016 was 11.1%. 2017, an additional 11.6%. And 2018, 12.1%. I don't think they reported 2000. 19 yet. But in my view, these numbers are likely to gain momentum. They're going to be much larger. And if even these numbers are half right and the inflation rate is 5 or 6%, that goes a long way to explain the situation of American families, where in the 1970s, they owned one car. They had backup if a relative got sick. They had their own child care. And you move into the 2010-2020 period, where you have two workers per family instead of one. You have two cars instead of one for many families. Child care expenses, health care expenses have skyrocketed because the government doesn't include the rise of the deductibles that have been made. The good news side is that clothing and food prices have been pretty much contained during that period, but eating out prices have gone up substantially, as have entertainment prices. So these are all to give you a a better feeling about looking at, you know, ultimately, if you want to, how you spend money, what your own inflation rate might be, why we're in the situation we're in, and actually why the next year or so, or maybe more, is going to get worse, sorry to say. So finally today, I really do continue to suggest that you focus on the behavior of the small number of global money managers. One of the themes in the podcast has been price-energy ratios are great, uh, fundamentals of a company are great, but market moves can be so severe on sell-offs that it's also worth considering what the asset preferences are and how they change of the very, very large global money managers. And I'll give you an example today, just an example. BlackRock controls over $7 trillion of investable assets. They are one of the largest investment money pools in the world. They are seven times larger than the $1 trillion pool managed by Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund with the North Sea oil money. And other ones, even including the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is over a billion dollars. 
I don't mean to, to exclude America's ultra-wealthy, and many of you know that America's famous multi-billionaire recently sold his airline stocks and his bank stocks, and uh, this was in the past six months, but he bought shares in a go large gold mining company. I took note of that, but recently I took note that BlackRock Energy and Resources Trust, a part of the BlackRock group, very recently doubled their exposure to gold mining stocks. And from another industry source in Canada, I learned that BlackRock has made substantial reinvestments in one of Canada's largest gold miners. The name is Kirkland Lake, if you, if you have that interest. And they've also made major purchases in the gold exchange traded funds. Over the past 12 months, again, if you want to follow up, uh, BlackRock's Tom Hall, H-O-L-L, and Olivia Markham have gone on the record of doubling their investment exposure to gold and gold-related. We've all likely noticed that gold and residential real estate continue to benefit from low interest rates and money creation. Maybe these assets deserve more attention by all of us. To conclude, zero interest rates and excessive money creation are bound to create inflation, and they're bound to create serious issues in the bond markets. They are also bound to give new support to gold, the stock market, and possibly, likely, residential real estate. But the sell-offs along the way can be really severe. That's true particularly in the gold, particularly in the real estate markets, and we've seen them in the stock market. So the sell-offs are really severe, but the trends with the existing major policies that I've covered should continue to provide strong support for these, for these markets. I do one last time encourage you to join our free course that expands greatly on our podcasts, and that is to be found at www.uclextension.edu. And if you go down the homepage to the No Cost Educational Resources and Tools, you can click on the box and you will find the 2020 Panic What's Next, Navigating Panics, Recessions, and Recoveries, and then just enroll. In the meantime, be well, be safe, be financially careful. And the next podcast will be recorded a day or two before the election. So let's see how that turns out, because it will probably be made available a day or two after the election. So thank you. And again, be careful. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.